is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Good afternoon to you, Michelle Stanley, along on the Country Hour. It's just gone half past 12 and the Territory's Gamba Action Plan has kicked off today. Free herbicide is up for grabs for landholders in the Darwin rural area to help control gamba grass. Everyone that lives in the rural area that uh, knows gamba knows that it's a, it's a priority. It's a priority for personal safety. It's obviously a priority for the environment. Um, Gamma is a transformative weed. It changes environments. But for people too, it's, it's a real risk. There are concerns about this year's allowances though. You'll hear what those concerns are shortly. Also, a huge deal in the Gulf Country has been done. It's been done between two private parties. Reports of $380 million for a massive aggregation of grazing countries. Four stations are included, we believe, along with up to 80,000 head of cattle. It sends a very strong and clear message to other potential investors that um, there is uh, huge potential in this part of the world. You get the details of that this afternoon. You're listening to The Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you. Big story today, though. Gas company Santos has lost its appeal in the case against Tiwi Island traditional owners to do with its $4.7 billion offshore Barossa gas project. Traditional owners claim Santos and the federal government failed to ensure they were properly consulted about the project's potential risks to their marine environment, dreaming story tracks and animals. In September, the federal court ruled in favour of the traditional owners, finding the project's environmental approval was invalid. Santos appealed that decision and it was that appeal which was dismissed in the federal court just over an hour ago. Alina Lakin is a lawyer with the Environmental Defenders Office representing Tiwi traditional owners. Alina, you were on the Tiwi Islands and were with the traditional owners at the time of the judgment. What was their reaction? Uh, well, thanks, Michelle. I'm, I'm still here in, in the islands. Um, it was just jubilation and uh, the school kids came down to watch. The elders were there. They had a smoking ceremony beforehand and everyone was just so relieved and, um, you know, just over the moon to be vindicated by the full federal court in this way today. What does this mean? What does this judgment mean for the people of Tiwi Islands? Well, what the court has said is that Tiwi people have an immediate and direct interest in sea country arising from traditional cultural connections. So the court has acknowledged the depth 
and the power of the connection that Tewi people have to their sea country. The court has also said that the drilling that was proposed by Santos could have a serious impact on Tewi people's connection and reliance on the sea, and that Santos, despite knowing about that connection, excluded Tewi people from the consultation process. So the court really has um, you know, upheld every aspect of the case that we put on behalf of Mr Tipper Clipper and Tiwi people. What was Santos's argument and what did the, the judges say in their decision? Uh, well, Santos's argument was that whilst Tiwi people have a genuine connection to the sea, that it's not the sort of interest that that this particular regulatory framework is intended to protect, that it's more like the interests of the general public. So, you know, really, um, in effect, trying to diminish the character and the nature of the interests that Tiwi people have in their sea country. And the judges, as I said before, absolutely dismissed that argument and acknowledged and accepted that Tiwi people's interest is immediate and direct. This decision isn't likely to be the end of Santos's ambitions to get gas from the Barossa. What do you expect the company to do next? Well, what Tiwi people have been saying all along is that they would like Santos to come and engage in meaningful consultation across the eight clan groups. And to do that uh, in the spirit of an open mind and an open heart to hear what Tiwi people have to say. And Tiwi people believe that if Santos come here and hear their point of view, that they will not go ahead with this project because they will appreciate what is at stake here in terms of Tiwi people's deep cultural connection to the sea. Do Tiwi traditional owners have the power to veto this project? Well, as I said, this is a requirement to consult with Tiwi people, but the Tiwi traditional owners are confident that if Santos, and equally when the regulator properly assesses this um, project, again, if Santos put in a new approval, that if they truly engage with what traditional owners are saying about the risks to their sea country, that there's no way that they can proceed with this project in good faith. We're talking about a $4.7 billion project, which would have brought a lot of work and economic activity to Darwin. What would you say to people who might think Australia and the world needs the gas from the Barossa for the global energy supply? Well, most importantly, I would say that this was a case about people having a voice and people getting a say about what is most precious to them on their doorstep. This was a case about Tiwi people being completely excluded from consultation about a project that has the potential to have catastrophic risks for their community. So that's really what was at the heart of this case. It wasn't a case about the pros and cons of the project. It was a case about people who have the most to lose being excluded from the process. Do you think anything can be learnt from this? You know, there are, there are obviously other major projects on the cards across Australia. Could this decision have an impact on those projects? 
Absolutely. This decision will have national and even global implications. This decision will mean that every gas company across the country will need to consult meaningfully with First Nations people as part of the process of seeking these sorts of approvals. This is not a decision that's limited to the Territory. It will have implications around the country. And Alina Lakin, thanks for your time this afternoon. Thank you. She is a lawyer with the Environmental Defenders Office representing Tiwi traditional owners. It's 22 to 1. Hello, um, my name's Josephine Grant. I'm with the Tea Tree Rangers and we're doing soil erosion at Andulia Station and you're listening to Country Hour. Yes, you are. Michelle Stanley along this afternoon. And we're talking about the big news today that gas company Santos has lost its appeal against Tiwi Tiwi Island traditional owners to do with its $4.7 billion offshore Barossa gas project. The federal court uh, dismissed Santos's appeal today and the company's released a statement. Dan Fitzgerald is in the studio. Hi, Dan. Yeah, g'day there. So, yeah, Santos has put out a release to the stock exchange. I'll share part of it with you. Um, it says that Santos has always sought to meet w- meet its consultation responsibilities and is continuing the process of revising the drilling environment plan to address the matters contained in the federal court judgment today. It says, further, Santos will now proceed with applications for all remaining approvals in accordance with the guidance provided by the court. As a result, Santos does not anticipate any material cost or schedule impact and first gas from the Barossa project remains on track to be delivered in the first half of 2025. That is a, a statement released by Santos just a short time ago. So it's not over? Uh, it does not appear that way. Um, no, Santos uh, is saying that it, uh, it means to go ahead with the project. Um, if you want to read more about this story, there's an online story up on the ABC News website right now. Thank you very much, Dan. It's 20 to 1 on the Country Hour. Very shortly talking about gamber grass. If you're keen to uh, help remove gamber grass from your property in the Darwin rural area, five litres up for grabs. Um, We'll talk about that shortly. But let's have some music from Amber Lawrence. This is Let's Take It Somewhere in the Middle of Nowhere. Amber Lawrence, Let's Take It Somewhere. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. 17 to 1. Michelle Stanley with you. Free Herbicide is on offer for landholders in the NT today to help you eradicate gamber grass. Each year, the NT government gives out glyphosate to people in the Darwin rural area. But with the price of herbicides almost doubling in the past year, there are concerns there won't be enough to go around this time around. Nigel Weston is the Director of Weed Management in the Territory. He says it's an important program for the region. Well, I guess the event today is the opening of the program for the season. Um, So this morning at uh, Fred's Pass, had a couple of our officers out there handing out the uh, free herbicide and offering uh, equipment loans to residents in the rural area. Why do you do this? Um, well, it's been a successful, well, it's been a very popular program that's run now 10 or 12 years, I guess, um, where, I, where government recognised that um, we're all in it together. Uh, we need to support landholders to manage their gamber when it wasn't necessarily their problem to begin with. 
And we also recognise that government has a responsibility on government land too. So uh, where we try to look after our affairs, we thought it was only fair to assist private landholders to look after theirs. So how exactly are you assisting private landholders? Yep, so the Gamber Action Program is one of several um, programs we have running at the moment. Obviously people would have heard about the Gamber Army and, and that's focused primarily on government land at the moment where we've got uh, groups of people out there spraying gamba, making sure it doesn't become a problem, or at least trying to, um, for private and other landholders. We've got a fire-ready assistance program too for, for rural landholders that uh, might be willing to get on top of their gamba but just not able. So we can provide contractors there and I encourage people to get in touch with the branch if they want to know more about it. But the uh, most popular, I guess, and long-running program is the gamba Action Program, and that's where we provide assistance to landholders in the in the form of free herbicide, glyphosate, and equipment loans, um, quick sprays, and the like. So this year you're giving out five litres. That's down from previous years, isn't it? Well, I guess as an upper limit, that's down. Um, there always was the option of five or ten litre um, drums of herbicide. This year, as, as everybody knows, the cost of living is high, the cost of fuel's high, and the cost of herbicide is also high, uh, to the point where it's effectively doubled in the, uh, in the last year. So government has given us $100,000 again this year, as they've done for the last few years, to purchase herbicide, and, and we get what we can with it. To make it go further, we have limited the amount each uh, landholder can obtain to five litres. Do you think that will have an impact on how much of a, a difference this round of herbicide will make? Um, it will in terms of numbers. I mean, self-evidently, I guess. Last year we had over 2,200 participants in the program. If we've got half the amount of herbicide to give out, um, then obviously fewer people will be able to access this program. I would remind people though it is an assistance program there's nothing stopping landholders from purchasing their own chemical and 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 dealing with the gamba that way um again we're 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 here to help we're doing a few things differently though this year as a result of uh the limited or 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 the uh, the the smaller amount of herbicide that is available and that's by providing information to people by way of a qr code on on the containers that uh, participants will be given, also on posters and stuff around the place. So that, that lets people know there's some videos on when, when you access that QR code which um, informs people, instructs people about how best to mix their herbicide and how best to apply it and at what time and at what growth stage of the GAMBA 2 to, to maximise uptake. So we're wanting to reduce waste. We also, we have 500 of last year's participants, so each person that gets herbicide will be asked to uh, provide name and, and, and addresses um, and from our list of um, participants last year we'll be following up through our compliance and enforcement program actually uh, to see that those that are participating in the program are doing the right thing as well. So there is some responsibility back on the landholder um, when they access this program to manage their gamba. So we haven't got as much but we're going to be we're trying to be smarter about the way we one distribute it and the way participants use it. You've said that the you know the cost of living is getting higher. Do you see gamba grass slipping in the priority list of expenses that households and landholders are going to have to, you know, be forking out? You know, when you see a gamba fire in the rural area, you'd say no. You know, when you see that thing or hear it 
first actually now. Um, everyone that lives in the rural area that uh, knows Gamma knows that it's a, it's a priority. It's a priority for personal safety. It's obviously a priority for the environment. Um, Gamma is a transformative weed. It changes environments. But for people too, it's it's a real risk. So uh, I don't I don't think uh, it, it reduces its priority or the priority is lessened um, by other pressures um, because the risk is very real. Are you disappointed that the funding couldn't be increased to be able to allow you to buy more herbicide to, to help fund this program? You can always do more with more. That's Nigel Weston. He's the Department of Environment Director of Weed Management. And a few texts coming through on 0487 1057. You can get in touch today if you'd like to chat about gamba grass. One person says uh, people still need help fighting gamba. Just have, you just have to look at people's properties. It's everywhere. Please help. Thank you for that. 0487991057. Um, Therese Fly Creek is a bushfire volunteer. She says she hates to see the way Gamba is transforming our bushland and have helped locals to identify and manage Gamba on their properties. Landholders need more support to get on top of Gamba. Reducing the amount of poison is very disappointing. How can landholders eradicate this weed with reduced support? Therese asks. Maybe we will get funding to install fencing and livestock? Will it take deaths from gamba fueled fires before this problem is taken seriously? A few more texts. I'll get to those in just a moment. If you'd like to share your thoughts, 0487 1057 is the text line. Uh, now, Nigel Weston, you just heard from a moment ago, he, we were talking about the, the decreased amount of herbicide available this year. Pauline Cass is with Gamba Grassroots. She expects that reduced amount will have a significant impact. I think that the Gamba Action Program is perhaps one of our most important Gamba management tools in the Territory. My concerns are the cost of herbicide keeps increasing and yet the funding for the Gamba Action Program hasn't changed. So because the cost of herbicide has basically doubled, it means there'll only be half as much herbicide available to landowners to get rid of their gamba, which means that there'll be properties out there that won't be able to control their gamba properly this wet season due to the lack of herbicide that will be available. In response to those concerns around the amount that's available, the government has said that, you know, it's an assistance program. It's not a 100% kind of program. And ultimately, it does come down to the landholder. They are responsible for weed management and there's nothing stopping the landholder going to buy their own herbicide. What do you say to that? Basically, people can't afford to buy their own herbicide there's a lot of people that are struggling at the moment. Groceries are getting expensive, fuel is expensive, the cost of living is expensive. And if you're struggling to feed your family, buying herbicide as much as you might want to get rid of your gamba, it's going to take a back seat to doing what you need to do to care for your family. So people need the help with the free herbicide with the Gamba Action Program to get rid of their Gamba because it's a terrible choice to have to make. You know, do I let my Gamba grow and risk losing my home 
in the dry season or do I, you know, meet the needs of, of the family in terms of food or school expenses or what have you? So there's $100,000 that's gone into the program this year and, and landholders can pick up five litres of herbicide while it lasts, you know, until, until that runs out. What would you like to see done? I think that the funding, so the funding's remained at $100,000 a year for the Gamber Action Program for years now, and it needs to actually reflect the cost of the herbicide. So $100,000 several years ago bought a lot more herbicide than it does now. Um, so they need to tie the, the funding for the Gamber Action Program to the real cost of the herbicide that they're buying to provide to people. Because if people miss out on getting the herbicide and if they can't get enough to make their places safe, they won't do it if they don't have any other way to get rid of their gamber. And we'll see more gamber present on people's blocks, not because those people are lazy and not because they don't care, but because they just don't have the means to purchase their own herbicide. Pauline Cass, thanks for your time this afternoon. Thank you. She's from the land care group Gambergrass Roots. If you're keen to pick up your five litres of glyphosate, head to the Fred's Pass Sport and Rec Reserve. It opens again at 2.30 this afternoon and tomorrow between 8 and 12. Head to the NT Government website or just pop Gamber Action Plan into your search engine. You'll find the details of where to pick that up. A few texts coming through on 0487 1057. One person says, much more needs to be done to eradicate hate gamba. People are doing their best, but now the NT government has cut the amount of weed killer. As a government introduced weed, the government has a responsibility to provide support and resources to rid the top end of this menacing and dangerous scourge. 0487991057. I'll get to some of those texts a little bit later in the program. Let's go to some property news now, though. Beef Central is reporting that New South Wales cotton growers have bought a huge cattle property in Queensland's Gulf Country in a deal worth $380 million. Four of Gulf Coast Agricultural Co.'s golf properties have reportedly been sold to Peter and Jane Harris. Neither the vendor nor the buyer have returned calls to the country hour, but we understand the deal didn't involve any agents. Barry Hughes is the mayor of the Etheridge Shire. He says the news took him by surprise. You know, reading from the article that, that you're referring to, um, which is what I'll be basing my comments on, um, it's um, my first reaction was that um, what a great outcome um, in regard to investor confidence around the potential of that integrating uh, aspect of cattle properties in the lower Gulf region, uh, unleashing the potential of the agricultural prospects of those properties, and to see the uh, the scale of the uh, intent there that's uh, written in that article, I think it's uh, it sends a very strong and clear message to other potential investors that um, there is uh, huge potential in this part of the world. And from that article, we've understood that it's a walk-in, walk-out prospect with some seventy to 80,000 head of cattle. That's a, a really big deal. And um, the price we've heard around that $380 million, really significant. 
Oh, look, absolutely. And um, I, when I think if you look at the scale of the aggregation and the Managaza family have done a, a fantastic job in, um, you know, ensuring that the, um, the land management practices on those, on those large aggregations have been second to none. Um, there's been a lot of improvements right across uh, that portfolio. And, um, and, and in some ways, um, there's, a, there's a, a bit of history there around the involvement of um, that family in regard to getting the live export trade back and running. Um, there was a lot of work done across uh, utilising those properties um, in, in regard to uh, restarting that process of, of allowing the trade to uh, continue back into Indonesia. Um, we're talking um, substantial cattle numbers um, right across that aggregation as well, and um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's great that we're getting uh, interest from other sectors within the agricultural sector to to look at that land as they're doing further west in the Julia Creek and in the Richmond region. But um, let's not uh, let's not underplay the significance of what the agricultural potential is in regard to uh, those properties in that portfolio. And in this case, it's understood the Harris family from New South Wales, well known in the cotton industry, are the purchasers of that aggregation. We're yet to speak to Peter and Jane Harris to confirm that. The ABC Queensland Country Hour has left a number of messages with them to speak to them about their purchase, but they're yet to get back to us. In that sense, the prospect of development of cotton up there, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, um, cotton certainly is the flavour of the month and, and you know, uh, we, we've seen a lot of uh, cultivation across um, the the regions in the Gilbert River catchment area uh, and also further to the west. But um, <clears throat> the huge potential there, and, and I don't want us to get in front of the ball game here in relation to government legislation around agriculture, um, you know, we've got some fairly large impediments there that, have, um, that are stifling agricultural development, which in turn is also stifling economic development right across um, that north and northwest region based on the veg management laws, based on land tenure, based on water allocations and water pricing. There's a whole range of issues there that we need to overcome and find ways and means to work a lot more closer with the state government in regard to that to unleash that potential and make sure that we uh, we see that sustainability built into um, all those small regional and rural communities that have great opportunity to feed off the agricultural sector. Etheridge Shire Mayor Barry Hughes is also the president of the Gulf Cattlemen's Association. He was speaking with Ali Felton-Taylor about that sale reportedly worth $380 million of four properties in Queensland's Gulf country. A few more texts on Gambergrass. Keep them coming through 0487 1057. Um, the captain of the Marikaya Volunteer Bushfire Brigade, Ralph, says it's pleasing to see the increase in funding to combat the Gambergrass issues within the NT. However, the decrease in the amount of herbicide available to landholders to combat the spread is a backward step in the efforts to control it. Yes, I understand the prices have risen, 
I do not understand landholders needing to control this pest, then reducing the assistance available to the landholders to carry this out. I believe that the poison available should be, at the very least, the same amount as last year. Thank you for that, Ralph. We'll continue this conversation after the news. It is one o'clock. Hi, I'm Erica. And hi, I'm Billy. And we're, we're from, from Eagle Rock Station. Station. I listen to the Country Hour podcast as I'm out and about on the station, and so should you. Hope everyone's having a good season and enjoying their lunch. You're listening, listening to, to the, the Country, Country Hour. Hour. It's five past one. Hello, Michelle Stanley with you today. It's good to have your company. We've been talking a bit about Gambergrass today because officially the NT government has started handing out glyphosate to people in the Darwin rural area to help with the control and ideally the eradication of Gambergrass in the NT. Uh, But a few people a little bit concerned that there's just not enough. One person on the text line 0487 991057 they say, looking at the state of some blocks around Humpty Doo, you could give the owners 1,000 litres and they'd probably be too lazy to do anything with it. We all know the costs and work associated with owning a rural block when we buy them. Another person says people need more help to manage their gamba. And another text, will there be an increase in funding for people to get enough help to eradicate gamba on their properties? The amount available now isn't enough. There is, I think it was $100,000 that's been put towards the free glyphosate handouts. You can get five litres if you're keen. Um, but at that this stage, that's all there is. So get in quick. Yeah, head to the NT Government website if you want to find out exactly where and when you can pick up that five litres of glyphosate. And again, 0487991057 is a text line if you want to get in touch this afternoon. Let's check in with the Weather Bureau now. Sally Cutter is there for us today. Hi, Sally. Good afternoon. Looking at the the weather radar, it looks bone dry across the Territory at the moment. Was there any rain in the last 24 hours? Yeah, there was 10 millimetres at Cape Wessel. So right out on the end of the Wessel Islands, there were some storms up there overnight and that's just sort of clipped the end. There's... 1.5 1.5 millimetres at Adelaide River, Dirt Lagoon, and there was a couple of showers around the Dundee Beach yesterday afternoon, so that might have been the odd thing sneaking in, in there, but generally it's been pretty dry. Is there any chance of that turning around this weekend? Um, this weekend it's still going to be very isolated around the coast, the northwest coast. It's not until we get into next week that we start seeing uh, an increased risk of those showers and storms occurring. They'll probably be a bit gusty across the top end and when they do end up moving down through or extending down through the western districts and across the southern parts of the NT as well. So there could still be some gustiness in there, but generally they're going to be fairly few and far between. How hot are things likely to get in sort of around Darwin and Catherine? Uh, pretty hot. The, if we're looking Catherine way, we've got 40 degrees for Thursday, so we're looking at 30, 38 for the next few days. The, if you're out the, in Kakadu, Jabiru, we're looking at 38 there as well. So it's the... No, sorry, Catherine's 39. I was looking at Jabiru before. 39 for today, 40 for Catherine for tomorrow. Then we're looking at 41s and 42s 
and overnight we're looking at the minimums getting into the mid 20s so it's it's going to be hot during the day and, and still quite warm overnight if you around the darwin area today we're looking at 36 37 inland and those 30 and the coastal area is going to continue around that 35 degree mark so it's we're looking at pretty hot temperatures in the north and even if we go down through Central Australia, so we're looking at 35 today, but getting up to 39 by next Wednesday. Right. Okay. So still, still warm in this in Central Australia as yep. well. If yep. anyone's looking to wet a line over the weekend, how are the coastal waters looking? Uh, coastal waters on the west coast, we basically westerly winds 10 to 15 knots, maybe 15 to 20 knots on Sunday. So if you're in a small boat that doesn't require wind to power it probably Saturday be a better day remembering that so once you get over 15 knots you start it starts getting a little bit sort of that you need a you need a bigger you, need you, a, you always need a bigger boat <laughs> yeah you always need a bigger boat along the north coast of the weekend we're looking at variable winds 10 knots and around in the Gulf of Carpentaria 10 to 15 today tomorrow sort of northeast and southeastly on this is Saturday then Sunday northeastly 10 to 15 knots and if you are going out into the harbour, we're looking generally sort of 10 knots, reaching 10 to 15 knots in the middle of the day tomorrow, and then more west to south, northwesterly, 10 to 15 knots during the day, and then decreasing in the evening. So hot for the next week, right across the territory, and maybe next yep. weekend some rainfall. Uh, so maybe from Monday you might see something, okay. but it's yeah, it's, it's only a slight chance for most of the top end. But this weekend, not not great. Not good news, Sally, but thank you. Um, have a lovely weekend. We'll catch you next week. We do, thanks. Uh, the duty forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Sally Cutter, it's 10 past one on the country hour. And right now, the majority of lithium mined in Australia is shipped overseas for processing. That's what's happening to the lithium from the Finnis mine near Darwin. But a new demonstration plant that aims to create a greener lithium product has been given the go-ahead in Western Australia. Technology company Calix and lithium miner Pilbara Minerals have entered into a joint venture to decarbonise the lithium refining process. It follows an 18-month scoping study and is supported by a $20 million federal government grant. Calix Chief Executive Phil Hodgson says it could be a game-changer for the lithium industry. It's pretty significant. The Australian spodumene industry, if you like, is the source of the majority of the world's lithiums today for lithium-ion batteries. But most of that spodumene is dug up and sent overseas, and it's basically 94% waste. Uh, it's only 6% lithium oxide. And so one of the things that we wanted to do here in Australia, obviously, as, as part of the, you know, critical minerals or battery supply chain, is onshore more processing here. So we capture more value here. And so what this represents is a new way to start to produce higher value lithium salts from our spodumene mining, cut down the amount of waste, cut down the amount of carbon that's produced it and do that with an Australian homegrown technology from Calix and obviously combined with Pilbara Minerals lithium expertise. So it's a very important joint venture and uh, demonstration project for this technology. For any listeners who might be just getting introduced to this concept, what is your technology and how does it work to take that spodumene and create lithium? 
it's just a new type of kiln or furnace. It's just a new way to heat stuff up, basically. Uh, obviously, we've been heating things up for a long period of time as humans, and uh, most people will be familiar with a kiln. Uh, you, you've got a flame in there. You're heating up rocks, and, and Bob's your uncle. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, spodumene is not an easy thing to heat up without melting. As soon as you melted it, it's very difficult to extract the lithium. And secondly, when you're mining spodumene, you produce a lot of very fine particles and they're not suitable for uh, conventional kilns. What Calix has developed as a new way to heat stuff up is a new type of kiln. It's a vertical tube. It can be heated with renewable electrons. You can have sort of elements around the outside of the tube doing the heating so uh, absolutely connect through to wind or, or solar power and it loves small particles they basically get dropped down the center of the tube and, and it's the red hot walls of the tube radiating heat into the particles that heats them up uh, and so we can heat up these particles without melting them we heat them up just enough to crack them open and then the lithium is extracted once they've been cracked open. So so that's that's the Kalex technology and what it brings to, to this particular opportunity with spodumene. My understanding is Pilbara Minerals and Kalex were working on a pilot that's now led to this demonstration plant. Could you walk me through that process and so I guess the work that's already been done? Yeah, sure. We, we started on this idea about well, nearly two years ago now the pilot facility is an electric-fired calciner, uh, renewably powered with solar panels that we have at Bacchus Marsh in Victoria. Calix Limited is using that for, for multiple different minerals testing. And uh, we obtained some samples from Pilbara Minerals of their spodumene finds and started conducting that testing sort of 18 months ago now. And that testing proved highly prospective. We're able to convert the spodumene to an extractable form of, of lithium uh, without melting, and so clearly the technology sort of passed the test at pilot scale. Since then, we've decided to move to a demonstration plant, scaled-up version of that pilot scale plant from 2,000 tonne per annum to 30,000 tonne per annum input. We're targeting about 3,000 tonnes per annum of lithium salt production from this facility, and that demonstration plant will be located in the Pilbara at Pilbara Minerals site and today represents the, I guess, formalisation of all the joint venture agreements that we need to put in place to, to progress the demonstration project to the next stage. So you did just touch on that 3,000 tonnes per annum of lithium salt would be success um, for this demonstration plant. What needs to happen for you to achieve that? What are, I guess, what are the goals? What we want to do from a timing and milestone perspective is reach the final investment decision point for this project by June next year. And at the moment, what's being undertaken is a full feasibility study for that project, including all of the economic factors and inputs, etc., as well as establishing the market for the lithium salt, of which we've produced a small quantity already. Uh, should we pass that financial investment decision uh, around June next year, we then move into procurement detailed design, construction, all that sort of stuff. And, and so we're hopeful to have this demonstration planned up and running sometime in 2024. Calix Chief, Chief Executive Phil Hodgson speaking with Tom Robinson about a new demonstration lithium plant set for the northwest of Western Australia. Let's just stick with mining because the iron ore price has jumped above 100 US dollars per tonne this week for the first time since September. The commodity has seen a 25% price increase on this time last month. 
And as China signals an easing of its COVID zero policy, analyst Gavin Went says those rises could be here to stay. It is virtually all China that has uh, contributed to this market optimism and subsequent rebound in price from below $80 per tonne to currently above $100 per tonne. And basically, iron ore can be viewed as a, I guess, a, a, an option, a call option on the health, not only of China's economy, but particularly its construction industry. China is the biggest consumer of iron ore in the world by far, and most of that iron ore goes into its construction industry. And you can chart the progress, both upwards and downwards, of iron ore pretty much in direct correlation with the health of its construction industry. There are some big problems, of course, over the last 12 months that have emerged with China's construction sector, mainly due to defaults on the extraordinarily high levels of debt uh, that are present within the construction sector. So China's authorities took a deliberate step to try and cool the construction sector and by, I guess, association, uh, it cooled the steel industry and, of course, the iron ore price. So iron ore prices had fallen. Markets, however, are getting more optimistic with respect to the outlook for China. There's a lot of pressure on Chinese authorities on two fronts. One, to ease the, the restrictions, and secondly, to get the economy going again. And typically what we tend to see is China's authorities stimulating their construction sector. So that's what markets are getting excited about. Right. So are you expecting these prices will continue to rise, the iron ore price? It's very difficult to predict uh, what's going to happen with the iron ore price. But if markets are optimistic with respect to China and there is the very strong possibility that China will open up and there is that pressure on China to open up and also to get its economy going once again, you'd have to think that there is more upside in the iron ore price. And I think the, the $100 per tonne price level is a very important psychological level. And now that we've seen prices hopefully consolidating it around that level, we'll start to see prices increase further. The other important thing to bear in mind about China is typically this time of the year, November, December, is a time when seasonally it restocks. So it comes into the marketplace and purchases more iron ore because uh, it needs that iron ore as we head into the new calendar year. So seasonally, it's a time when China comes into the market, purchases and basically gets ready for industry to crank up in the first quarter of the of the coming year. So it wouldn't be a surprise to see Chinese buyers coming back into the marketplace once again, which would also add to optimism with respect to the iron ore price. Mine Life Senior Resource Analyst Gavin Went, who was speaking with Steph Sinclair about the recent jump in the iron ore price up above 100 US dollars per tonne for the first time since September, currently sitting at about 105 US dollars per tonne. And for context, I think the major miners, BHP, Rio Tinto, their cost of production is less than 20 bucks a tonne. It's 20 past one on the Country Hour. Let's get ready for the weekend. This is Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks, weekend. It's 23 past one. Uh, g'day, this is Vin Yuen from TV Farms in Sydney Markets and you're listening to the Country Hour.
Top End Buffalo and Cattle producer Norman Fisher is being farewelled at a memorial service at Bamaroo Plains today. The 47-year-old died after his helicopter crashed in Arnhem Land just over two weeks ago. Norman, alongside his family, run, ran an extensive buffalo cattle and contract mustering business on a number of properties across the Top End. He was also involved in the commercial crocodile industry and was involved in land management partnerships with traditional owners in Ramaninging. NT Buffalo Industry Council President Adrian Phillips said Norm was a a once-in-a-lifetime operator. He is truly irreplaceable. In terms of his role in the Fisher family and his presence across the industry, it's impossible to measure the sense of loss that we're all feeling. Norm built an incredible legacy which will live on for many years to come especially in his children. Our thoughts from everyone here at the Country Hour go out to the Fisher family. It's 24 past one. Can you imagine taking a trip for work, expecting to head home maybe a few months later, but having to stay for almost two years When Albert Chan boarded a flight from Tonga to carry out seasonal work for Costa Group in Australia in April last year, he never imagined that that was going to happen to him. But after COVID pandemic border closures and losing contact to his family during a volcanic eruption, Albert Chan and thousands of other Tongan nationals will finally fly home this week. I started coming over here since 2017. Yeah, and we couldn't make it on 2020 because of the COVID. Yeah, no flight. And then we finally make it on like 2021 to come over. And then we uh, we were expecting to just come over for like six months, six to seven months. Then we go home. But end of the season, we didn't make it. What happened, we uh, couldn't get a flight back home because of the COVID. Back home, our country, the border was still locked. So we couldn't make it home. And then the company has to find us more work to do. That would be quite hard to process not being able to go home when you expect. Do you remember how you felt when you found out that news? Yeah, it was pretty sad. Yeah, and some of the boys were disappointed because they were expecting to see their families. Because normally it's just six months and now it's been the longest time that we are away from home. Especially most of the boys, they didn't expect that. The federal government granted more than 13,000 visa extensions to help stranded seasonal workers continue working in key industries like agriculture. More than a quarter of those went to Tongan nationals like Mr Chan, who says his employer Costa Group found him additional work after the citrus season ended in the Riverland. We, we end up going to Tasmania picking berries. Yeah, our blueberries, our blackberries, strawberries and yeah, raspberry yeah, for a couple of months and then We have to come back here for the start of the season this year. But while there's been plenty of support, he says the distance from family has been tough, especially amid disaster and disease. Been a lot of challenges uh, since we were here, especially when we we went to Tasmania. That was the first time that we got the COVID. Yeah, and then when we were quarantined with the COVID, and then we, we heard the thing that happened back home, the volcano and the tsunami. The magnitude 5.8 earthquake on January 15 destroyed Tonga's phone and internet connection to the outside world. And it, it was that time, it was pretty uh, sad and it was pretty difficult. Boys were 
worried about their families. Network couldn't um, couldn't get any network back home to contact their family to see how they uh, check on them how they are. Yeah, it was pretty hard. Yeah, for me, it took like almost a month to contact my family. It must have been such a relief when you heard from them and they were all all right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, since as I heard from them, yeah, they messaged me. And oh, thank God they they still alive. <laughs> yeah, because we were from the other islands. <laughs> yeah, I think they were lucky when the volcano and the tsunami hit Tonga because we were here. Once we get uh, connected with them, then we send them money. Yeah, even the company that we work for, Costa, they load up a container full of food to support the families back home. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, we to appreciate their help and yeah. <laughs> So you're flying back home in, in less than a month. How do you feel about that? Pretty exciting. Looking forward to uh, see the families for like over a year and a half now, almost two years. And the beaches, swimming, because we live in an island, we always swim every day. <laughs> Have you got like a first meal planned or somewhere you're going to stop and get food from or someone's house you're going to go to? Normally when we uh, go back home, the families will prepare seafood. Yeah, normally they get like octopus, um, oyster, lobster. Yeah, they get like those kind of food. Yeah, fish, big one, raw fish. So you've been to Australia a few times, but this time was a uh, a lot longer than you expected. Do you think you'll come back? Yes, I do. I do. Um, I'm gonna come. I'll come back next season because um, normally this is where we we get money to support our families back home. Well, he hasn't had enough of us, and it's good to hear. That's Tongan seasonal worker Albert Chan. He was speaking with Eliza Berlage on the eve of him going home almost two years after he got to Australia. He thought he would be here six months. Almost two years later, he's on the way home, and it sounds like quite the feast on the way for Albert Chan as well, all of that incredible seafood. It's coming up to 29 past one. From the stories that celebrate the 4.4 million Australians with disability to the stories that break down barriers. Hi, I'm Jill Hicks. Tomorrow, ABC content makers with a disability across the country will shine a light on the great work developed and told by them right across ABC TV, online and ABC Radio. Thanks for your company on the program this week. It's been great to hang out with you. One last text on the topic of gamba grass comes from Al in Humpty Doo. He says, glyphosate is diluted to one one millilitre per litre. Therefore, five litres of glyphosate should give you 500 litres of spray. I guess Al's saying that it's maybe not quite as fast as you might think. Thank you to everyone who got in touch this afternoon. I'll be back with you next Monday. But for now, have a lovely, safe weekend. It is 1.30.